Welcome everyone to Kingdom 101. It's great to have all of you back. At the same time, we want to say hi to those who are listening in to our SoundCloud. As much as I am uh, thrilled that all of you are here, I'm also reminded that as we do this teaching, we are reaching thousands more outside there. And so I pray that you guys listening in will also have a great time. So let's begin, let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text for this evening. Father, we thank you, we praise you, Lord. We know that you are here present with us, Lord. And Lord Jesus, we always want to declare your name because there's no other name than your name. Be glorified, be magnified through the declaration of the word, Lord. And Holy Spirit, please come. Please be with me and be with everyone listening in so that we can have uh, wisdom and a revelation to know Jesus even more. And so we thank you, we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have been journeying with us, you know that we have been going through Matthew chapter 13. And we have come to a point where, as we talk about the kingdom operating system, the KOS, not the IOS, but the KOS, we have gone through the different parables. And tonight is the seventh parable in Matthew chapter 13. So if you'd like to know the rest of the teachings, uh, please feel free to listen to the previous teachings and all. So we've gone through the parable of the sower and soils. There's a parable of the wheat and tares. There's a parable of the mustard seed, parable of the leaven, parable of the hidden treasure, as well as the pearl of great price. And this evening, we will get into the parable of the dragnet. And you can find this in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, all sorts, which when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the parable of Dragnet, and you will find that it is rather similar to another parable. It's the parable of the wheat and tares. Sounds about the same, but as you have already learned, there are similar items, but there are differences between the two parables. But let's look at the dragnet. A dragnet is actually a large net, not the one that you use individually as a fisherman where you stand in shallow waters and you, you cast this net. Or you go out a little bit more, you throw this net and you pull this in. No, the dragnet is a larger, much larger net. And what they do is that they will tie this net between two boats or three boats uh, and they will pull it out and then later on drag this net. And that's why you call it a drag net. You need two, three boats, uh, long ropes um, to be able to handle this huge net. So even from this one small point, we can see it's not a single person's effort. The kingdom of God, the things that we do, does not depend only on one person or two persons, but it's a collaborative effort of kingdom partners across different kingdom agencies. And the kingdom of God is like this dragnet as we put our hands together to the plow and as we collaborate and partner with one another, there's this net that pulls and draws things in. Now, think about this. If you are on a personal kingdom assignment, I want to encourage you. Sometimes you can feel very lonely. But praise God that all our personal kingdom assignments, if we know how to hook up with one another, if we can align with each other with kingdom perspective, there's a, there, there's something there, a collaborative effort of a, of a kingdom purpose that will bring in, as it were, the harvest or, or the fish or the catch. So this dragnet pulls and it's being uh, dragged along and it pulls in all sorts. The kingdom of God will attract and bring in all sorts. And with the analogy of a fish uh, or, or fishes, Jesus used this very familiar picture for the people listening in. The fish will all come in all sorts, different species, uh, different shapes and, and different sizes. Now, if you remember in the parable of the mustard seed, remember the, the kingdom grew from a little seed to this huge tree. And we have learned that the tree is actually symbolic of kingdoms. In the Old Testament, they used the picture of a tree to describe a kingdom. Now, in the parable of the mustard seed, when it became a tree, the birds 
of all sorts, all kinds, will come in to nest in it. So it's the same kind of picture. The kingdom will grow, the kingdom will attract, the kingdom will draw in and bring in all sorts of birds or all sorts of fish. But as it pulls it in, in the beginning, there's no distinction. Fish is fish. <laughs> if you get into the murky waters, they all look the same, right? And so you can't really tell the difference between one and another. And that's how the kingdom of God is like. It will draw in all sorts, but you can't really make that distinction. The difference will not be apparent until much, much later when the boats finally get to shore and then they unload all the fish. And then they look at this fish all over the place like, wow, quite different now. Got so many different types here. Right? And does it again ring a bell? The parable of the wheat and tares, in the beginning, they look the same. Right? And you will be until later on, much later, then you are able to sort of make out that difference between the wheat and the tares. And it's consistent. It's still the same down here. So you see all sorts of fish, all kinds of different species, and then Jesus then gives the explanation. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, they'll separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So what he's saying is that, you see, as you get the fish in and then you unload all these and the commentators have done a study. They say that there will be at least about 24 species or even more than that of fish counted amongst within the lake or the sea of Galilee. Now, some of these will be clean and some will be unclean if you understand kosher laws. And the net would not be able to discriminate in its catch. So this picture is very, very common to the people who are living around Galilee this is a common occurrence. They would have seen fishermen coming in at the end of the day, hauling in those nets, throwing out the fish, and sitting down and then separating what is clean and what is unclean, what is edible, what is unedible, uh, what is kosher, and what is not kosher. So think about this. From 24 species or more into just two categories, clean, unclean. The good, they gather into vessels, and the bad gathered to be thrown away. Now, symbolically, Jesus then explains, this is what's going to happen at the end of the age, that the angels will come, all, the, all sorts will be all sorted, all sorted out, very neatly sorted out. And this separation is done only at the end of the age, and it will be done by whom? Not you, not me. It will be done by the angels. And again, same point in the parable of the wheat and tares. It is the angels that will come and they will do the separation. Same thing from the many species and the many types, only to two categories, the wicked and the evil, and the just and the righteous. But there's a little difference in this parable. There's no mention of the reward of the righteous as in the wheat and the tares. Only what is mentioned is the fate of the bad and the wicked and the evil. And once it's separated, it's all sorted out, what will happen is that they will be cast into the furnace of fire. And you know that this is a very common picture again, not new to the people listening in. Jesus spoke about this many times. Even John the Baptist, in introducing Jesus, he said that there'll be one who will come after me. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather the wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so, familiar? Very familiar. Is Jesus teaching anything new? No. He is just emphasizing a point and making it even clearer. And there will be wailing and the gnashing of teeth. And listen to the tense. It's, it's, it's wailing and gnashing goes on. It's unquenchable fire, which means the wailing and the gnashing is eternal. There's no end to that. So as we look at this picture... We say, okay, fine, there are only two categories. I think in my mind and in your mind, you may be wondering, okay, so how do we find out who are the righteous and who are the wicked? I think we want to know, right? Because finally, if we understand that the parable refers to all of us also, there will be two categories. So who are the just and the righteous? Very clearly, we know from the previous parable, which is related, the wheat and the tares, we know that 
the righteous or the one that would be brought in will be called, these are called the sons of the kingdom. Sons of the kingdom. These are the ones who are the righteous. And I've got good news for you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, right? We believe and it's accorded to us the righteousness, accounted unto us righteousness. We have given this gift of righteousness. Not only that, by the Holy Spirit, we are adopted to be sons and daughters, co-heirs of Jesus Christ. Will it be correct to say we are sons and daughters of the kingdom? That would be a good place for an amen, yes? Right? So we are sons and daughters of the kingdom. But don't just stop there. You see, because we want to follow Jesus, we want to be like Him because He is that true Son of God, the one Son of God that is the prime example. So let's write down and remind ourselves that sons, to be true sons and true daughters, we must represent and reveal the Father. Jesus made a big deal of this to say, look, you are of the Father, you say, but actually you don't reveal or resemble your Father. In fact, you reveal the devil, so you are son of the devil. He told the Jews of his days. If you say you're a son and a daughter of the kingdom, we must represent and reveal the Father. And now not only that, the nature of our Father and together with Jesus, but sons and daughters also do the work of the Father because we are here to fulfill the will of the Father. And that's why we are hung up in Akiva's awakening of knowing and fulfilling kingdom assignments because we believe that that forms a part of the general will of what God wants to do in this time and in this season. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been gifted with righteousness. We don't earn it per se, right? We don't deserve it per se, but we have been gifted with the gift of righteousness. But does it stay there? If you look at scriptures, we are reminded that we must move from a gift of righteousness to now grow and bear the fruit of righteousness. This is what scripture reminds us. So let's talk about works for a while. Is it not true that Paul tells the church in Corinth to say, can you please be careful? This is how you have to build. Make sure you build with precious stones. Don't just build with hay and wood and stubble, right? Because one day, your works will be tested by fire. When the fire comes, the works will be tested. Why? Because we are expected to do the works of the Father. We are sons and daughters of the kingdom. Consistent, totally. We don't work to be saved, but because we are saved, good works will flow out of our salvation. That's a good place for amen too, right? See, so once we say we are sons and daughters of the kingdom, can you see the implication? There are a few other things that we have to look at. Secondly, how do we bear the fruit of righteousness? We don't really like this, but in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, we are told that the fruit of righteousness is born and tested through difficult times. It's through the tough times that the fruit of righteousness is born out of us. Not through the easy times, not through the good times. Right? In the good times, easier to be righteous. But in the tough times, the tendency is always to compromise. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The next thing to remember is that in this life, there might be a sifting before at the end of the age comes the sorting. There's a sifting before the sorting. Do you remember this guy called Peter, Jesus' disciple, who denied him three times? And before he denied Jesus, he says, no, no, Jesus, I'll follow you all the way, man. If I die, I die. Amen. Hallelujah. And Jesus told him, he said, you know what? Satan has asked to sift you. And Jesus allowed that sifting. But he told Peter, now when you come back, you come back strong, okay? I'm praying for you. And so the Lord allows us to go through challenges and even at times for the enemy to sift us. And if we will stay on and stay through and come back on, then when the time comes for the sorting, we know we will be sorted out correctly. A sifting happens even before the sorting. And this is expected of all disciples of, all disciples of Jesus Christ. In time, we'll get to Matthew 16, God willing. And Jesus tells his disciples, 
if you want to follow me, you deny yourself. You take up the cross and you follow me. And you do all that I tell you to do, right? And you're assigned and you be faithful and you just hang in there no matter what happens. And finally at the end, the Son of Man will come with the angels and the rewards will be given out. You see, the angels will come to sort. The Son of Man will come to reward. But for disciples to deserve and earn those rewards, we have to show forth the evidence of the salvation that has been given to us, our allegiance to Jesus Christ and our faithfulness to Him. I remember this verse in Galatians 6 where time and again, you know, it's a good reminder for us. One simple line. Do you know God is not mocked? God is not mocked. In other words, you cannot bluff anyone. Don't pray, pray with God, you know. I mean, He's good, good Father. He's loving. He's gracious. And we understand all that. But if you go through Scripture and understand the things of the kingdom, you won't see a consistency that is there to say if you are truly sons and you're truly daughters, then we have to live like that. And our lives must be exemplary where this is concerned. So sons of the kingdom, daughters of the kingdom, no problemo. If you're going to be on this side of the sorting, praise the Lord. But let's look at the other side. Then who then are the evil and the wicked? As I ask this question, you probably will be saying, not me, la. I think I'm okay. La. I, I, I didn't scold anyone today. I didn't rob a bank. Huh? I, I didn't do any crazy bad things. Well, from the parable of the wheat and tares, Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, it gives us a qualifier. It says, all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Very broad categories. But it's good to study that so that at least you have an understanding. Now, I believe one very obvious category will be this, that in the last days, there will be false apostles, there will be false prophets, teachers, and there will be fake believers. In the last days, all these things will happen. You just can't tell the difference, right? If we heed the words of Jesus in these parables, you can't tell the difference. They will all look the same. They will all sound the same. They will all sound good. But there will be those who will bring offense, or those who will sound really good, but they are still practicing lawlessness. And Paul and the scriptures say, of these sort, stay away. If you can even smell the hint of that, stay away. That's the wrong sort. You want to be of the correct sort. But how do we define evil people? We will think of murderers, we will think of rapists, we will think of all these kind of extremities. But one day I was reading Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. And I believe we are living like in the times where we need Jeremiah's to be prophets to call the people to account, to awaken the people of God. And he said this of kingdom people. Remember, the Israelites, the children of Israel were God's kingdom people. And he said, this evil people, telling the people of Israel, people who refuse to hear my words. So if you are disobedient, you're evil. People who follow the dictates of their hearts. They're selfish. It's all, all me, I, me, and myself. They follow the dictates of their hearts. And that's why I keep saying the advice to follow your heart is a terrible advice. Right? Never follow your own heart. Deceitful above all things. The third category, they walk after other gods to serve and to worship them. They're idolatrous. Fourthly, they are unprofitable. They are like a sesh. Jeremiah uses parable of a sash, and if you, if you tie a sash around your waist, it clings really close to you. It looks really nice and fashionable. Looks really good, but unprofitable. That's what Jeremiah is saying. You guys look good, but there's no profit in it. Nothing is coming out of it. You are disobedient, you're selfish, you're idolatrous, and thereby you are unprofitable. And he calls these people, you are an evil people. Wow. If we look at these four categories, we should do an evaluation. Then we all agree, quite evil. Oh, at certain levels, quite evil. Thank God for Jesus and the blood that was shed for us. Amen, right? All right so if we are sons and daughters, then make sure we live out sons and daughtership. But who gets to determine? Who gets to sort? You know, it's not me. It's not you. It would be the angels. And so you have to ask yourself, um, if you say you're saved and you're righteous in Christ, praise God for that, and you have nothing else to do and you know, everything's okay, then I will say good for you. Lah. 
Because I, I, can't, I can't evaluate you, right? Finally, I'm not the one that will sort you. You're not the one that will sort me. You need to make your own evaluation. Finally, I stand before the Lord and you will stand before Him. But you see, the Lord gives us hints. He gives us clues. So He says that there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth for this group of people. So thank God for concordances in the Scriptures, in the Bible. Do you know that if you look at this one phrase, at least just in the book of Matthew, there are four mentions other than this one. Wailing and gnashing or weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I'm going to give you all four. And you will find that the, all four, it will be the unbelieving, the unfaithful, the unforgiving, and the unprofitable. These four things. Jesus makes it very, very clear who are the people who will be wailing and gnashing. Okay? So I think it's good for us to learn this. Don't tell yourself, not me, nah. Let's be open in our hearts and consider first. The first one, unbelieving. Jesus said this after he commended the, um, the centurion of great faith. And he looked at the people of Israel and he said, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, this is quite scary. Huh? The sons of the kingdom will be cast out. I know we don't like to hear this. I know immediately when we look at that, we will say, cannot be. Like, this one, before he died on the cross. Like, after he died on the cross, this one won't happen. But you've got to weigh these words and you have to consider this. Because Paul did say, don't be so complacent. The natural olive branches were broken off and you were grafted in. Right? Now, if you don't believe and if you don't live right, you can be taken out again. That's in Romans chapter 11. So let's look at Scripture holistically, okay? So these are unbelieving sons. So it's a, it's, a, it's a warning for us. We believe we became sons. Now what does it mean then to believe after that? That we can continue to be in this um, privileged position. Secondly, and let's talk about unforgiving first. Matthew chapter 22 verse 13 is the parable of the unforgiving servant. He was forgiven, but he didn't want to forgive another one. You know this parable very well. Jesus says that the king binds him, takes him away, casts him into outer darkness, and there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I think right now, let's pray a prayer of forgiveness for the people around us. Right? Because we have received a, a salvation and the forgiveness of our sins through the death of Jesus on the cross. Hey, this is a big deal, you know. As Christ for, has forgiven, we must forgive, you see. And a pastor did ask me this once as he was trying to prepare this message. He said, do you think this one is about salvation? Do, you, do we lose our salvation? I said, I'm not very sure. I, I really hope it's not. Uh, but don't take my word for it. Let's look at Scripture and understand what it says to us. The third one is unfaithful, okay? Unfaithful. Now, where do we find this one? Matthew chapter 24. Right? And I, I've used this passage often in our Keeper's Awakening to say, guys, we need to be faithful in our kingdom assignments because there will be a servant who is unfaithful and he will be cut in two. Now, after he's cut in two, I don't know what happens to him, but he still can be appointed to him, his portion with the hypocrites. Friends, the last thing we want to be are hypocrites. And the scariest thing is we earn ourselves that kind of a reputation. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the last time we see in Matthew is Matthew 25, where is the parable of the talents. Two servants were faithful, and they were good stewards. But the third one buried the money underneath, and then the Lord comes back, and He says, cast this unprofitable servant. The same thing again. No profit, no return coming back into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I'm going to leave you to find your own conclusion, okay? So all in a rather simple parable, I won't say it's simple to stomach, but I think it's rather straightforward to understand. If our hearts are open, we should let the Holy Spirit lead us and bring us into a conviction so that we can live right before the Lord. But is that where it ends? 
No, it's not, because there's a second part that we must go into right now. You see, we have been talking about the kingdom parables. We've gone through six, and I've shared with you the seventh one. And you know, it's all about a kingdom operating system. This is how the kingdom operates. Jesus made it a point to share it in very simple stories. And for those who get it, they will get it and they will receive more. For those who don't get it, they will just miss everything about it. Now, I want you to see, it's not just seven parables, one after another. But I would like to show you that there's a pairing of the parables. And this is where it gets a little bit more interesting. In our previous teaching about the mustard seed and leaven, those two, we handled it together, where we described the extent as well as the effect of the kingdom. Then there were the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price taken together because they both declared the value and the worth of the kingdom. But now when we look at the dragnet, and it sounds really the same as the wheat and tares, you notice that there is a pairing between these two parables also. But what does it give us? It shows us that as the kingdom is valuable, as the kingdom is growing and has its necessarily effect and impact and extent, it happens within this context. It happens within the context of the present age where the coexistence of good and evil take place. The kingdom will flourish, the kingdom will grow, and the kingdom is still valuable within this entire context of the present age. But not only that, it highlights the consequence of the end of the age, that there will be a sorting and a separating. But we started with one parable, which is the most famous parable of all, I think. It's the parable of the sower as well as the soils, which means to say that Jesus started with that to tell the people, look, if you look at the sower and the soils, this would describe how the people will respond to all the other happenings. Everything that's taking place, there will always be these four categories of people that will be responding to it. As we look at the seven parables and the way that it is positioned and paired also, you will notice something that comes before the parables and something that comes after the parables. And what comes in front is that when Jesus finishes that first parable, he declares, let him who has ears, let him hear. So he talks about hearing. And then the disciples ask him a question, why you talk to people in parables? Huh? Why, why, why do you tell him these kind of stories, right? So he explains to them, and he says, well, because many will hear, but will not understand. You see, so can you see the consequence here? They will hear, but they will not understand. But after all the seven parables, he looks at the disciples, and he asks them in verse 51, so have you understood all these things? Can you look at this wonderful sandwiching in that, in that sense, right? Jesus says, those of you who have ears, you better hear. But hearing in a Hebrew context is not just hearing. It's to hear with understanding. And so that with understanding, there can be an application. So the main point of this whole thing, of the kingdom parables, of the kingdom operating system, is simply this. Hearing and understanding. Hearing and understanding. So right in the beginning, again, the disciples asked Jesus, why the parables? Jesus answers and explains, many will hear and they will not understand because of the condition of their hearts. But right at the end, Jesus asks in return now, do you understand how the kingdom operates? And then the disciples said, yes, Lord, we understand now. So can you see that the sower and the soils, the parable, brackets everything. This is the key. If you have one parable to memorize and meditate on, it has to be the sower and the soils. Because how you respond to everything that's contained within it will determine the impact and the influence and the outcome of you as sons and as daughters of the kingdom of God. I, I cannot emphasize this more for you. Huh? It's so important. Because if you look at the four categories of the soils, you will see that the first one 
Jesus says, the seed that falls on the wayside, these are the people who will hear but do not understand. And I tell you, there are many people in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about unbelievers. Huh? Many times we think that this is the seed that talks about salvation, to believe in Jesus. No, they don't understand the things of the kingdom. And that's why it's taken away from them. The second one is that they hear, they sort of get it, they're happy for a while. But because of the challenges that are out there, they stumble. So they may understand, but they don't internalize it. They don't bring it in. They don't live it out. They fall away. The third one, they hear, but they are distracted. And I think this represents a lot of us in the 21st century, right? They are distracted. Cares of this world, are riches, are deceitfulness of sin. And they become unfruitful. Oh, this word must ring in our hearts all the time. You see, it's not just about believing. Fruit has to come out into maturity. But the fourth category, which is the good soil, is he who hears and understands and then yields a mighty harvest. A hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. So this summary is important for us, and I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you just to come here and be a hearer of the word. I want you to understand the things of the kingdom and to understand just means not just cognitive, intellectual, but to begin to live it out as sons and daughters of the kingdom. And so does this end Jesus' parable performance? Is this the end? Well, it's not. Because after this, there is an encore. There's an epilogue. In fact, there's an extension and even pushes through to an expectation. And we see this in this final verse in 52 in our passage. And then Jesus then said to them, after they replied to him, yes, Lord, we understand all these things. Then he says, therefore, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So this is his concluding point, and it's almost like he's given a bonus. This is parable number eight. We started with seven, right? And he he throws in one last one for good measure. And he says, if you understand, if you really, really get it, now this is what must extend from you. This is what is expected of you who say that you understand. He says, therefore, every scribe, every scribe, let's talk about a scribe here. A scribe is literally just someone who is a a writer, a, a recorder, like a secretary. That's what a scribe is. If we look in Bible times, in scriptural context, they started out as um, people who could, who could write, who could record, who could transcribe information. So they were employed more into the uh, secretarial, into the legal uh, needs. They would record all the stuff, manuals uh, for the military, the strategies, the thoughts, the minutes of the meeting. They would record, they would chronicle history, write down, record the public documents. You can even employ a scribe to write a personal correspondence, right? I think in times past, they they were not literate, they were not able to write, so they employed some of these people to do it. They were then brought into the temple to be administrators as well as into the royal courts, and they began to, to rise in the rank as well as in their status. After the exile, 70 years later, they were brought back in, and together with the reforms of the law brought about by Ezra and Nehemiah, the scribes became very, very important. Ezra himself was known to be like a scribe because you can read, you can write. They teach the law. They started to interpret the law. They became a class of scholars. And they were well looked up to, and they were there to help the people understand the things, uh, the Torah, um, and to how to apply that. In fact, as they moved around, they will be called rabbis, teacher, master, and when they walk in, everyone will honor them. They will have the best seats in the house. Uh, and they will have the best places at the banquets as well as the feasts. So in view of their importance and their prominence, very soon they became affiliated with the religious and the political leaders. 
In fact, they were mentioned often with the leaders of the Sanhedrin, which is the uh, religious council of Israel. Uh, every time you mention Pharisees, you mention the scribes, right? So Jesus, when he calls these people to account, it will always be the scribes and the Pharisees or the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, what's your view or your perception of these scribes? I think if we've been in church long enough, we would view them negatively, right? Because they're, they're always seen as the opponents of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus came and he interpreted the law in a certain way. And to the scribes, it was, hey, hello, you're coming onto our turf. You're not in- interpreting the way that we feel it should be interpreted. So they were always having a go at one another. But not all scribes were bad. We mustn't think that way. Huh? Not all scribes were bad, just like not all Pharisees were bad. There were Pharisees who finally believed in Jesus, and there were also scribes who wanted to follow Jesus. In fact, we studied one of the scribes before in our teachings where he came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And so not all of them are bad. So in this context, now Jesus refers to the scribe and uses a scribe to make a positive point. And let's be clear, there's nothing wrong to be a diligent student or a teacher of the Word. That there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong if you want to be an expert of the, of the law of religious studies or to be a scholar in the Scriptures. Nothing wrong. It's a very, very good thing and a noble thing. But you see, there's a qualifier that we have to see in this one phrase. Jesus says, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house or a house master, a householder, a master of the house. But how does this become like a master of a house? Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's not just you knowing the law. It's not just you knowing your Bible from back to front. It's about you being instructed in the things of the kingdom. That makes all the difference. Right? Have you met people who know the Bible inside out and they argue with you? But when you talk about the kingdom of God, they are so far away from it. They don't understand what the kingdom of God is all about. So it's not just knowing the law, knowing the word of God, and being able to quote it and, and post on Facebook all over the place. That sounds and looks very impressive. But I'm sorry, it means nothing if you are not instructed in the things of the kingdom. Now, if you press in a little bit more, this one word instructed in the Greek can actually be translated disciple. It's the same Greek word for the word disciple. Every scribe discipled in the things of the kingdom. You know what Jesus is really saying? I'm excited that you know the law. I'm, I'm excited that you, you, know, you, you want the best for the people to help them not to sin against God and to help them live as righteously as possible. But you see, it doesn't stop there. You have to understand the things of the kingdom. You need to be discipled by me, the king of kings and the king of the kingdom. So once you understand the, the kingdom matters and the kingdom perspective, you become like the master of this house who begins to know how to sort out the treasures both old and new. This is the one phrase that qualifies everything. We need to be disciples of the kingdom. We need to be instructed in the things of the kingdom. I mean, look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Jesus spent 40 days, 40 nights before his ascension with the disciples, instructing them of things pertaining to the kingdom. He wasn't teaching them how to run church, how to hold a nice service. We have two fast songs and three slow songs, you know, and then we do an altar call, and then we have an offering, and make sure we have a second offering if you have a guest speaker. It wasn't the matters of running a church per se in, in the way we understand it these days. He was teaching them things pertaining to the kingdom. Friends, we have to be disciples of the kingdom of God, not churchdom and not churchianity. We have to understand kingdom. And this is what makes all the difference. And when you are disciple, I mean truly disciple, you become like a house master. 
a master of the house. Now think about it, if you are put in charge of a hall, if you stay in a hostel of sorts and you are the house master, right? You may not own this place, but you take ownership of the people that you look after. Am I right? And you want to show them what the right ways are, what the rules may be also. But there's ownership and there's also leadership. And I think this is where it makes all the difference when the, when the kingdom of God becomes personal to you. When it becomes real to you. You start to own it. You steward it in a very, very different way. And I believe that there's a very strong instruction here to leaders of any level in the church today. Whether you are a pastor or an elder or a cell leader or a ministry leader or a family leader. That there's now a responsibility for this leader and this head to guide and show others the things of the kingdom. And that can only happen if you are first disciple concerning the kingdom of heaven. And disciples are expected to be like that. Disciples of the kingdom are to be like the house master. Where they're willing to, they're always eager to, to show off in inverted commerce and to show forth the, the treasures in this house. I can just imagine if I walk down to Oldham Hall and one of my classmates today, he's the, he's the chairman of, of Oldham Hall. If I were to walk in there, he would probably show me the pictures. Huh? He said, oh, this is probably what happened. You know? And the, the trophy, oh, we won this, you know, uh, or we did this. Huh? And you, you'll pull this out from uh, maybe 1960 or uh, pull it out from 1980, bring out the year 2000, and more recently, this is what... He is willing to, to show it off. Are you hearing? He's willing to show it forth because he's the house master. He's excited about it because these are, are treasures that he wants to share here with you. And the word that says, the householder who brings out, it's not just bring out and show you home. In the Greek, is, is to throw it out. Ekbalo. It's the same word again. Jesus sending his disciples out. Ekbalo. Jesus casting the demons out. Ekbalo. It's like you visiting this house, and the master of the house is like, look at this treasure, look at this treasure, look at this treasure. Can you catch this one? Have you seen this? I was like, whoa. He's throwing things out at you because there's so many things in the kingdom of God that we are missing, my friends. But you've got to be disciple first. You've got to be disciple first. Otherwise, you'll be showing off wrong things. See, they're the treasures of the kingdom. And you know what's his desire, this house master? Remember the parable of the hidden treasure? That once you begin to see this treasure, understand the value and the worth of this treasure, that you are willing to give up and forsake everything, that you can gain everything that the kingdom of God has for you. You see, that's the desire of this scribe, of this disciple of the kingdom, where he's not here just to bring you a nice teaching. And I pray that you're encouraged by a good teaching. But I, I pray that I excite you with the treasures of the kingdom of God. That's my motive. That's all I want to do. And you'll bring out all sorts of treasure. All sorts of treasure, both old as well as the new. And I believe these, this might be a, a little paraphrase, an, allu an, an allusion to uh, the mysteries of the kingdom. And this guy who's disciple, he's got it all sorted out. <laughs> he knows the old, he knows the new, he knows which are no longer relevant, and he knows which would be significant and still relevant and consistent. Can I challenge you, friends? It's not the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Is it okay? Please don't think of it that way. Today as Christians, we tend to want to pit these two against one another. It's not the Old versus the New. It is the entire Scriptures. It is the Old and the New. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which we are so happy to quote all the time. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, when we say that, don't you think of both the Old as well as the New Testament? But do you know when Paul wrote that, there was only the Hebrew Scriptures. There was no New Testament. So when he meant all Scriptures, he actually meant only just the Hebrew Scriptures. To say, if you study the Old Testament, it's there, it's enough for you. But why is the New Testament there? It's because the Old Testament would be revealed in and through the New Testament, but the New Testament was already concealed in the Old Testament. You have to hold these two together to uncover the mysteries of God. 
and you learn it in tension. It's not one against the other. It's both together. There are certain things that are obsolete and don't confuse yourself between the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant and the Old Testament in its, all its books versus the New Testament. We generalize it so much until we cannot discern the difference anymore. Do you know that the kingdom of God started in Genesis all the way through, you'll end also in Revelations, and you'll continue. The kingdom of God has always been consistent. It's been the same God in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. God's storyline and His kingdom meta-narrative has always been there throughout. I think we do ourselves a disservice and we do God injustice when we see two different kinds of gods in the Old and the New Testament. When Jesus came onto the scene, He was not teaching anything new per se. He was only bringing understanding to what was already written and said where the people missed it big time. He was trying to bring revelation to what has happened, will happen, and what will come in the future. See, Jesus said it so clearly. He said, hey, hello, bro. <laughs> I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. Nah. I came to fulfill it. And many times we think, oh, to fulfill means he died on the cross. So fulfill already, so we don't need to do anything. In Hebrew understanding, to fulfill means to interpret it correctly. Because if you interpret it wrongly, then you have a wrong understanding. Then you apply it wrongly. It may not be disobedience, but it's misobedience. Jesus said, hello, I'm trying to help you. You're interpreting it wrongly. That's why you're living wrongly. Remember, you were said of all this, but I say this to you. So are you going to cancel all of Jesus' words just because that was before the cross? You see, the way that we teach things nowadays, it doesn't make sense. Jesus wasn't bringing anything new per se. He was continuing the track of the kingdom. In fact, he was realigning the people back from where they had been misaligned. The kingdom narrative is both new and old. And Matthew, as a tax collector, do you think he knows how to keep accounts well? I'm sure he knew, right? Yeah? All those tax people here are very good. <laughs> You're all very good in numbers. So if he wants to collect money from you, huh, he keeps very good records. So in a way, he's like a scribe. And Matthew, who recorded this whole thing, later on as a scribe, he became a disciple of the kingdom. And you know, in the book of Matthew, he quotes more than 60 references from the Old Testament to show you how it's now been revealed and fulfilled in the New Testament. And this is how God's story continues. Paul would be the other good example of what this phrase means. Paul was a Pharisee. And the Pharisee and the scribes, you know, they were mentioned together. And he was trained under the best, Gamaliel. He was zealous for the law and the traditions. I suppose he were quoted upside down, back to front, and so on. But then he was doing it all wrong. Then he meets the king. And he receives a fresh revelation of the gospel of the kingdom. And now he's disciple. He's instructed in the things of the kingdom. He becomes a house master, and he becomes a master builder of the house of God. I mean, this is amazing, isn't it? And he goes around now, and he, he shows people you're now under the new covenant, not the old covenant. Don't serve under the letter of the law, but by the spirit of the law. He brings out both the old, and he quotes Old Testament big time, and he knows it really well, but he gets a fresh revelation of what it is, and it's consistent one with the other, and he goes around, he reveals the mystery, he dishes out the treasures of the kingdom, and he's throwing it out to everyone, old and new. See, this is the expectation of sons and daughters of the kingdom. This will be the expectation if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're a disciple in the things of the kingdom, then you would understand the kingdom operating system. So we started out with seven parables, but you got a bonus. We ended up with eight. From a dragnet that brings in all sorts of fish to a housemaster that brings out all sorts of treasure. You know that the dragnet from all sorts to all sorted. Our part is to bring in the all sorts. The angel's part is to sort out 
all the all sorts that we brought in. So you've got to know your role. Don't get caught in the sorting now. I'm not saying believe everything. Be wise, be discerning. But can you know that your assignment is to be bringing in, not sorting out? For the housemaster, he helps the people who are hearing all sorts to understanding the sorting out of what you hear, that you understand it well. Because you've got to make sense of the teachings that you are receiving. So that you will be able to sort out the mysteries and the treasures of the kingdom that you may obey and live rightly as sons and daughters of the kingdom. See, the kingdom will bring in all sorts. The kingdom will bring in all sorts. And this is what I want you to remember tonight. But my one question for you as the end is, which sort are you? Which sort are you? I don't want you to presume anything. Will you be the sort that hears and understands? I pray so. And then that you will be the disciple of the kingdom to show others the treasures and the mysteries. And then you will then help them to hear and to understand. And so I hope that these eight parables will be helpful to you. And as we close, let me use the words of Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. So can I ask you, have you heard? I believe so. But I leave you with the same question that Jesus posed to his disciples. Have you understood all these? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your stories. They're so simple because it's so simple that you either get it or you don't get it. And that's why you explain to the disciples, to some, it will be a revealing. For others, it would appear to be like a concealing. But I pray, Holy Spirit, you're the one that would open the eyes of our hearts. I pray that our ears will be unblocked, that we can hear correctly. I pray that our eyes will not be blind anymore, but we will see what is important. And I pray especially for our hearts, O oh Lord, because in that four categories of the soil, we want to be the good soil who would not just hear, but also understand that we may apply, we may obey, that we may bear fruit and have a mighty harvest, some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. And Lord, we confess and we acknowledge our weakness. Will you help us? We thank you that it is by grace, through faith, that as we believe, we are sons and daughters of the kingdom. Help us, Lord, that we may bring you pleasure and joy, that we live as children, fulfilling your purposes and giving you glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.